Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Roger Pallon describes the thought behind our system of enumerated, limited powers. Ike Brannon talks about corporate inversions. Louise Bennett discusses cronyism and government handouts. And Jeff Myron describes the appropriately high hurdles for would-be interventionists. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Economic interventionists spend uh, a great deal of time talking about their ideas about the wonderful things that we'll get once we uh, intervene in the economy, and less attention, obviously, is paid to the unintended consequences of economic interventions. Today, we're talking with uh, Thomas E. Hall, professor of economics at Miami University in Ohio, about his book, Aftermath, The Unintended Consequences of Public Policies. We're also joined by Dan Mitchell, a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So l- let's take these uh, issues, I suppose, in turn. You 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 walk us through in your book uh, four interventions: uh, taxes on cigarettes, prohibition, uh, the income tax, and uh, the minimum wage. Where would you like to start, Mr. Hall? Uh, we can start with the income tax, I guess, because that's the first case that's considered in the book. Okay, in so the income tax was never really believed to be widely applicable to the broad public, and and yet here we are. So what are some of the unintended consequences that we uh, have faced with the income tax? Well, my argument is that the unintended consequence of the income tax was this flood of tax revenue that uh, surprised everyone and has led to the rise of the welfare state, the large modern government we have was funded by the income tax. And the irony of the story is that when they instituted the income tax in the early 1900s, the point of the exercise was to tax the upper class because back in those days, the federal government collected a revenue from taxing alcohol, tobacco, and imported goods. And the rich people bought, you know, they smoked, they drank, but those taxes were not anywhere near as large a proportion of their income as it was for the middle and lower classes. And then the customs duties actually protected these people, the, the um, wealthy industrialists. They were, uh, the uh, import taxes protected them from foreign imports. So they kind of had a, a pretty good deal. Uh, um, no taxes on income. Um, they were protected by the import um, taxes. So the argument was, well, what we need to do is, is tax these people. And so we can reduce the burden on the uh, middle and lower classes. So that was the point of the exercise. Uh, they went ahead and put in the income tax, but what happened was um, World War I came along. They raised the income tax rates to pay for the war. They dropped the exempt income amounts, uh, still geared at the upper class. I mean, they dropped the income exemption from 4000 to 2000 per family, and $2,000 of income for a family back during World War II still put you uh, pretty high up the income ladder. But uh, the, the result was this uh, flood of tax revenue. And this was the great uh, notification to everyone that the income tax is a very powerful revenue-raising tool. Dan, what's wrong with having this, a massive flood of revenue to the federal government? Uh, it depends on what size government you want. Uh, when you had a, the income tax first go into effect, the top rate was 7%, and it was only a tiny fraction of the population that paid it. But as Professor Hall pointed out, in World War I, uh, they jacked the rate up, I think, as high as 77%. Uh, but it was very high. Again, still targeted largely at the rich. It really wasn't until World War II that it went from being a class tax to a mass tax and uh, uh, broadly applicable to the entire population. Uh, but the, the key lesson, the unintended consequence that, that you draw out of Professor Hall's book is that, you know, okay, maybe at the beginning they were thinking, okay, we can use this revenue to, to lower import taxes. But once the politicians found out that it was a spigot, uh, then they began to figure out ways to spend the money. And as we see with uh, modern uh, tax and spending policy, uh, an increase in one tax is never used to lower other taxes. Almost never, yeah. Well, the good news is is that 
trade import taxes, protectionism has come down, came down significantly in the 20th century. And that, that's a victory that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't dismiss. The problem is it came at a very high cost because the income tax unambiguously did facilitate and enable the modern welfare state. And of course, we see in you know, the, the Italy and Greece and other European countries where that ultimately leads. All right, let's uh, take the next one in turn, I suppose, prohibition. Oh, we can talk about prohibition. So uh, this was, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, Ken Burns in an interview with uh, Reason suggested that the reason we had uh, prohibition was instituted was a, was a breakdown of civility. And, it, and I thought the, the fight actually for prohibition was basically pretty civil. It was after prohibition that after prohibition was instituted that civility seemed to, to break down. So what were the unintended consequences uh, of prohibition as a policy? Well, the original selling point for prohibition was that we were going to reduce alcohol consumption. And when that went down, all the problems associated with alcohol consumption would go down. So, um, you know, we'd have less crime, you know, drunken driving, that kind of thing. Uh, um, we'd have fewer um, uh, drunks beating up their women and, you know, their wives and uh, children and uh, broken homes and all that sort of thing, uh, reduced uh, cost to society and all these various forms. And the the problem was that you took this legal business and turned it into an illegal business, and when you do that, you the criminal element took over the the industry, and once that happened, boy, the crime rate soared. Uh, the criminals had an incentive to pay off the politicians to keep them uh, off their backs, so corruption reached unprecedented levels. And meanwhile, another huge problem was. Um, Unscrupulous operators began to produce uh, alcoholic beverages, um, uh, poison booze, and we don't know how many people died, but it was probably in the tens of thousands of people died drinking poison booze, and many others became permanently disabled, blinded, and so forth. Uh, so the unintended consequences took many forms, but it was an enormous increase in social costs uh, caused by these issues. And, and when we're thinking about unintended consequences, one thing is important to realize, if it wasn't for the fact that they had put the income tax in in 1913 and had this other source of revenue, you have to wonder whether or not the politicians would have been willing to go with prohibition because it meant, of course, they were sacrificing alcohol excise taxes. So it's sort of like one bad government policy leads to another bad government policy. It's a never-ending cycle. And one of the key uh, reasons for ending prohibition was, in fact, revenue for the government, wasn't it? Yeah, it was one of the arguments. Yeah, the Great Depression uh, greased the skids for it by uh, governments, the federal government was in bad need of tax revenue. So, yes. All right. I, I notice now, uh, as, as I look through these these reforms, these are all effectively progressive reforms, are they not? Yeah. As you did. So, cigarette taxes, that's uh, another one that you, that you talk about uh, as well. What What do we see with that? Well, the, motiv the original motivation there was not any health issue. Um, it, they weren't talking about that, uh, the cigarette taxes. Uh, it was purely revenue. Uh, the federal government started doing it during the Civil War, and then the states jumped on in the 1920s and 30s. And it was just a revenue-raising device, period, end of story. Uh, the, when the Surgeon General's report came out in the 1960s about the health effects of smoking, then they started using that as another motivation. Uh, to raise the taxes, the idea being to drive up the price of cigarettes so people would smoke less and we get this public health benefit. Uh, my argument is that the unintended consequence here has been uh, the smuggling activity. Uh, we've got these very large tax rate differentials now. Uh, if you buy a pack of cigarettes, the highest in the country is in Chicago, Illinois. If you had the Illinois, the Cook County, and the city of Chicago taxes onto it, you pay $6.16 in taxes for one pack of cigarettes. If you buy them in the state of North Carolina, you pay 30 cents in uh, taxes for the pack of cigarettes. Now, again, I've, I've excluded the federal tax. I'm just talking about the differential between buying them in Chicago and buying them in North Carolina. So the profit to be had from buying cigarettes in North Carolina and moving them up to Chicago, Illinois is enormous. It turns out to be over $2 million for one truckload. And the profits are so large that the uh, criminal element has jumped in here. They jumped in years ago uh, and have been earning very, very large profits illegally smuggling cigarettes uh, across state lines. Dan? And it's not just uh, domestically. Uh, internationally, we see huge issues with cigarette smuggling, not only smuggling from one jurisdiction to another based on uh, – 
uh, the tax rate differentials. But because the taxes are so high, you even have counterfeit cigarette manufacturers uh, putting together cigarettes, slapping on someone else's label. So this is an issue that the big cigarette companies, they're concerned about because uh, their profits are being undercut. But again, it's all being driven by the fact that governments are, are so greedy for revenue. They're using public health as an excuse to do what they like to do anyhow, which is to extract more money. Uh, but they are enabling uh, a criminal underground in the same way that they did with alcohol prohibition in the 1920s. Now, uh, Professor Hall, if, if I understand correctly, the you said that the drive to push for taxes on cigarettes, does that just have to do with the fact that people who like cigarettes really like cigarettes and the, the demand is uh, sort of stable for that product, even with a higher tax? Yeah, those are the products you tax. So you tax things. Whenever you tax something, you're going to get less of it. Um, but the question is how much less. And so what you do is you tax things uh, that you're, you're not going to significantly reduce the consumption of. Uh, that way you get a lot of tax revenue. So, for example, we tax um, cigarettes very heavily in this country because we have these people who are addicted to them. Um, alcohol is taxed heavily. Uh, a number of people are addicted to alcohol. And we also tax labor very heavily uh, because people have to work to earn income uh, so they can buy goods and services. Uh, so those are the things you tax. And, yes, cigarettes definitely fall into that category. Is, is there a clear sense uh, between how much money has gone to governments and how much money – uh, has gone to tobacco companies over the last few decades. It seems like uh, it, it seems like it might be an even split there. I I do not know that number. That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, the it's, it's significant. Uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, are being paid in ta cigarette taxes in a year. All right. So the the last issue you cover in your book is the minimum wage. Where did that come about? I assume that was at a local and state reform before it be obviously became a federal issue. Yes, the states were the ones that started this ball rolling back in the early 1900s. Massachusetts passed the first law in 1912. And the point of the exercise was to accomplish a couple of things. One was uh, the same argument they use today about, you know, today we call it a living wage. Uh, they wanted to raise the income of the working poor. The other reason that they stated was they wanted to eliminate, or not eliminate, but um, uh, push women and children out of the labor force. Uh, see, if, if we raise the cost of women and children, then firms would employ fewer women and children, and what would they need instead would be adult males. So that's what they were trying to accomplish. And they were honest about it. Uh, so yes, Massachusetts passed the first law in 1912. And what's interesting about it is that the original minimum wage law in Massachusetts, this was true of several of the state minimum wage laws that followed, only applied to women and children. The federal government jumped on the bandwagon during the 1930s, during the New Deal, and started passing minimum wage law. It was, it was part of the National Industrial Recovery Act. It was declared unconstitutional. So they came back and passed the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. And that's the one that has institutionalized the federal minimum wage. Um, they started out pretty small, 25 cent an hour minimum wage. It didn't really matter. And they weren't enforcing it. But it wasn't until the 1950s that they began to get serious about it. All right. And what was the result of, of that getting serious? Well, they raised it again um, from 75 cents to a dollar. And this was up, uh, you know, just getting above the market wage in a lot of parts of the country. And very importantly, they began to enforce it. And this shows up in the data. If you look at the unemployment rate gap or the differential between the unemployment rate for a teenager and a 16-year-old, uh, let's say, and the unemployment rate for um, an adult male, uh, you see this in uh, white males, black males, white women, black women. It doesn't matter. Uh, the gap between these two unemployment rates began to rise significantly in the mid-1950s. Uh, in other words, the minimum wage disemployed large numbers of teenagers uh, relative to adult men. And that's the unintended consequences. We've uh, uh, created a lot of disemployment effects for teenagers. Uh, teenagers have difficulty finding jobs. The... Um, uh, the unemployment rate has gone up. They have correlated this with teenagers dropping out of high school. They've uh, higher minimum wage is an increased incentive for a teenager to leave high school and try to look for work at this higher minimum wage. Uh, creates idle teenagers that are more likely to commit crimes. Uh, promotes discrimination in the workforce. Um, the gap between the unemployment rate for a black teenager and a white teenager started to rise in the 1950s. 
because by raising the minimum wage, you create an excess supply of labor and it allows people to discriminate. And we don't really see that argument presented today that we are actively trying to uh, disemploy uh, women, children, and in this case today, teenagers, right, Dan? Well, I think today the issue is entirely one, at least behind the scenes, of unions trying to price low-wage labor out of the market so they can uh, improve their own competitive position. Uh, but back when the minimum wage was first being implemented and first being enforced, they did have these other goals. And also, I think that there was some racism involved in it as well, uh, as uh, as you had some people thinking, well, we need to reduce competition from low-wage Southern uh, uh, black labor. It's sort of like the same thing with the Davis-Bacon Act, where they were very explicit about the fact that they were trying to keep blacks uh, out of the labor market from com competing for certain contracts. Probably the most disappointing thing about the minimum wage issue or most frustrating thing, I'm not even sure how to describe it, is that we normally think, oh, okay, maybe higher unemployment is an unintended consequence. But I think a lot of people on the left who want higher minimum wages, they just accept that as collateral damage. Okay, so what if, if, if one person loses their job, nine other people got a little bit higher of a wage, and they just make this very cold-blooded calculation that we're willing to have, whether it's 500,000, a million people, however many lose their jobs, that's okay because we've increased wages for a larger group of people. And, and it seems that they uh, implicitly appreciate the employment effects of increasing minimum wages by insisting that these uh, wage increases not go into effect all at once when those uh, job losses would be most visible. Yeah, that is true. They typically do it in a step form. Uh, yeah, in the background, they know this, uh, that the higher minimum wage creates disemployment. Uh, you know, otherwise, they'd raise it up to some ridiculously high amount. It's you know, $100 an hour, $1,000. Uh, know, pick your number. Um, but they don't do that because they know that they would destroy massive amounts of jobs doing it. All right. So you've, you've described these four issues and uh, the unintended consequences of each of these policy uh, uh, interventions. What is the clear conclusion that we can draw about these interventions as a whole? Well, my, the conclusion is simply be careful what you wish for, that um, when you institute these kind of policies, you need to pay attention to the unintended consequences. And what I've tried to do in the book is put together something that's accessible to people, and it's, um, it's a relatively short treatment and it gives them a historical context. And I just want people to you know, read the book, realize that there's big-time unintended consequences of a lot of these policies, and you need to ask about them before the policy actually gets put into effect. I'd make a big recommendation for the book. It, in effect, takes Frederick Bastiat's great insight from the 1800s. He was the last good French economist. I'm exaggerating, but uh, but uh, I think that's fair. Uh, Bastiat said the difference between a good economist and a bad economist, and I'm paraphrasing, was uh, one looks at this, the bad economist only looks at the seen. The good economist looks at the seen and the unseen, which is just his way of saying in, what, 1848 or whatever it was, uh, exactly what Professor Hall is saying today. Look at the indirect effects, the unintended consequences, uh, however you want to phrase it. It's not just what politicians say a policy is going to do. It's not just the official established goal of the policy. It's what actually happens once the government sticks its hand into the marketplace and starts interfering. You do get these negative effects, and oftentimes they might be unintended, they might be intended, but they're unseen, they're indirect. Uh, and, and a good economist is going to look at those things and understand the, the role, the usually negative, that government has in the economy. All right. Dan Mitchell, senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Thomas E. Hall, professor of economics at Miami University in Ohio. Uh, the book is Aftermath, The Unintended Consequences of Public Policy. Uh, and you can get your copy at our website, cato.org. Enumerated powers are limited powers. That simple thought is at odds with our modern federal government. At a book forum in August, Cato's Roger Pallon described the American vision of government, limited both in ends and means. I begin not with the Constitution, but with the Declaration, because it's there that the founders, 11 years, the framers, 11 years earlier, 
when they were founders, set forth their philosophy of government. And in order to understand the Constitution, it's absolutely crucial to understand the philosophy that stands behind it. And you get that from the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration draws upon the natural rights strain of the natural law tradition with its roots in antiquity. And in doing so, it begins with what's called state of nature theory. It asks what our rights are vis-a-vis -vis each other if there were no government and we lived in a state of nature without that institution. Because its main objective in state of nature theory is to show how a legitimate government with legitimate powers might arise. And it does that, as I said, by dealing with philosophical considerations of what our rights would be vis-a-vis -vis each other and our correlative obligations and responsibilities. And so we start with what is called methodological individualism. We start with the individual, not with the group. And in doing that, we turn to such authors as John Locke in the second treatise, who set forth the theory of rights, the theory of property, and the social contract theory. And that is traced by the Declaration in its seminal phrases that begin, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident truths are truths that are rooted in reason. And so when you do this analytical work, which I'm not going to be doing here in the short span that I have, what you come up with is with the idea that each of us has a right to be free, to plan and live his own life, all of which, as Locke said, is reducible to property, broadly understood as property in our lives, our liberties, and the property that we acquire legitimately in the world. There's your starting point for the theory of rights. And of course, we don't live in splinted isolation. On Black Acre or White Acre, we come together, and there are two morally relevant ways in which we do it, either voluntarily through promise or contract, or through force by committing torts or crimes. And so now we have the building blocks for the theory of rights and the two basic rights, property, broadly understood as I've just said, and contract. And that, when we flesh it all out, gives us a picture of what our rights and obligations are vis-a-vis -vis each other, and therefore what rights we have by way of coming together and creating government. And all of this is reduced very simply in the Declaration after that phrase that I just gave you. Jefferson says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there you have the premise of equality defined by rights. Rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of happiness is done differently by different people because what makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy. And so each of us has a right to pursue happiness by his own subjective values as he works his way through life, provided he respects the equal rights of others to do the same. And there, in a nutshell, is the theory of rights that stands behind the Declaration and implicitly behind the Constitution. Only then did Jefferson turn to the question of government, and he did it in the phrase that begins that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So notice that government is twice limited by its ends to secure our rights and by its means which must be consented to. Now that is the vision that they took with them 11 years later when they drafted the Constitution. And you see it all over in the preamble, which begins, we the people for the purposes listed do ordain and establish this Constitution. So notice we're right back in state of nature theory. All power rests with the people. They create the government. They give the government whatever powers they give it. That is the source of the legitimacy of the government's powers provided the powers they give it are rooted in reason, are rooted in the powers that each of us would have in the state of nature to yield up to government in the original position. So it's on the basis of both consent and reason that the 
Constitution enjoys what legitimacy it has. Now we turn to the doctrine of enumerated powers, which was what my chapter in the book deals with. And you see this in the very first sentence of the Constitution. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. You look at Article 1, Section 8, and you will see the 18 powers that are enumerated are the only powers that Congress has authority to exercise by way of passing legislation. And then you turn to the 10th Amendment, the last documentary evidence in the founding period, and you see this doctrine spelled out expressly. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. Delegated by the people, enumerated in the document, and limited by virtue of that delegation and enumeration. And so what the doctrine of enumerated powers gives you is the origin, the legitimacy, and the limits of the federal government's powers. Why do companies have operations overseas? According to Ike Brannon of Capital Policy Analytics and the George W. Bush Institute, companies want some mixture of cheaper labor and proximity to the markets they want to serve. But tax rates aren't irrelevant, like in the case of Burger King choosing to move to Canada. He spoke at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in August. Why do we think U.S. companies operate abroad? And I think that's the essential question we need to understand to uh, understand the, the current battle over inversions and also how we tax U.S. corporations' overseas income. And I think there's two different schools of thought, and the, the truth is really somewhere in between. Uh, I think the White House's position is that most companies that have overseas operations do so uh, primarily to exploit cheaper labor overseas. Uh, on the other side, I would say most Republicans in Congress think that, that U.S. corporations who have overseas operations do so in order to service local markets. Like I said, the reality is somewhere in between, but your perspective uh, on this issue uh, colors how you think we should tax overseas corporations. So um, the administration thinks that every single dollar earned by a U.S. company, whether they earn it here in the U.S. or they earn it elsewhere, should be taxed at this one same rate. In order to take away any single tax advantage that a company, U.S. company might have to take things overseas. Um, people who, who believe the opposite would argue that we want to keep U.S. corporations uh, as competitive as possible abroad because operating overseas also creates U.S. jobs. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, in the late 1990s, PepsiCo, uh, became very, very active in Eastern Europe. What they did is they bought a lot of uh, soda, soda um, from the Midwest soda pop plants, they bought a lot of potato chip factories, and they started doing a lot of production overseas. Um, there's no conceivable way that Pepsi could service those overseas markets by producing Pepsi and Lay's potato chips in the U.S. and shipping them 3,000 miles overseas and then selling them over there. That's the volume is way too much, the volume is too big for that to ever make any sense. But I would argue that Pepsi creates all kinds of jobs in the U.S. by having these jobs abroad. And the alternative to Pepsi having these operations abroad uh, is some other company with no U.S. roots and no reason to hire U.S. workers to do uh, back office management, IT, marketing, and stuff like that for uh, Pepsi's operations overseas. I think whenever we think about companies that are operating overseas, the first thing that pops in our plants are uh, U.S. manufacturing companies that, that take jobs and do them in, in Asia and South America where the labor is much cheaper. And there's certainly some of that. But then if you look at a company like Caterpillar Tractor Company, uh, which is from my hometown of Peoria, Illinois, um, Caterpillar does a whole range of production activities in Peoria, Illinois. 
And they also do a lot of production over, overseas as well. And the question is, why do they do, which, what kind of production do they do here? What kind of production do they do overseas? And the answer is kind of simple. Caterpillar does the very low margin, low cost production, uh, low tractors. They do those overseas. They do those closest to the markets where um, that uh, cost of shipment would be relatively large proportion of the total cost and where they can't be that competitive to produce something in Peoria, put it on a boat, ship it down the river, put it on another boat, ship it all the way across the ocean to, uh, to Asia or Europe or Africa or wherever. But what Caterpillar does produce in Peoria, Illinois, are the very costly high margin uh, tractors uh, that, um, that get shipped all over the world. And the advantage to being having operations in uh, production operations in China and Brazil and across the country is that across the globe is that it makes caterpillars uh, gigantic markets and makes them more competitive there. And so one of the things I think we need to be cautious of is that if we were to say, all right, screw this, let's uh, simply go back to a worldwide tax jurisdiction, get rid of all deferral, and simply make U.S. corporations pay the same rate on every dollar they earn no matter what. Caterpillar is going to do, and, and PepsiCo is going to do less things overseas. They're going to sell some of those operations. And those are going to come back, and they're going to hurt jobs, and they're going to hurt production here in the U.S. as well. Um, in 2007, I was part of a team of economists who did a report for the U.S. Treasury on corporate tax reform. And one of my tasks was to go and talk to a bunch of CEOs and uh, senior tax officers for manufacturing companies and ask them about why they locate certain operations overseas. And, and more than one said to me, we are located, our, our headquarters are in the United States solely because of an historic accident. Under no circumstance, if we were starting up a gigantic company now, would we locate a headquarters here because of the tax advantage. Uh, another Fortune 500 company uh, tax chief tax officer told me that they estimate that when they are operating in the EU, their average tax disadvantage is about five percentage points on their profits. That's significant. That makes it more difficult for U.S. companies to compete. I think one other thing we need to ask ourselves when we're looking at um, our corporate tax rate, which is, as David pointed out, um, has a lot of flaws in it, is, is who actually pays the corporate income tax? I think the, the, the facile way to look at it is to simply say, well, it's paid by big, bad, evil corporations. But all of us know a lot better than that. It has to be paid by one of three different groups. It has to be paid by either the shareholders in the form of a lower return of capital, or the workers who get a lower wage rate because there's less capital that they use and they're less productive, or it's paid by the consumers because they have to pay higher prices because of the tax. And I think in the last decade, the preponderance of evidence, both on the left and the right, has suggested it's primarily borne by the workers in the form of lower wages. Right? The Congressional Budget Office put out a study in 2006 suggested that it's between uh, two-thirds and three-fourths is borne by workers. Um, the liberal tax policy center, Urban's Brookings, suggests that it's somewhere like that as well. So I think we really need to be aware of these things uh, when we're condemning companies for, for doing these tax maneuvers. Uh, and then, you know, one other thing a company uh, pointed out to me, um, when we talk about why companies do locate operations where they do. A lot of the uh, drunk companies uh, op put their operations not in, in low-cost places, but a lot of them put things in Switzerland. Why is that? Well, it's certainly not because there's really cheap labor in Switzerland. It's because, uh, primarily because of tax reasons. So what's the answer? You know, Dan, I think Dan was going to wrap it up by uh, giving a couple of thoughts on what uh, he thinks we ought to do, but I'm, I'm going to jump the gun a bit. Uh, you know, there's a, a proposal out there that, that Greg Mankey wrote about in the Sunday New York Times and uh, has been getting a lot of traction uh, by Michael Grates, who's a, a, a tax uh, professor, a tax law professor uh, now in, uh, in New York. And his argument is we simply need to go to something akin to a, uh, a value-added tax or sales tax and generate the bulk of our revenue that way and use that revenue to uh, dramatically lower not just the corporate tax rate, which you would drop to something like 13 or 14%, but also uh, personal, the top personal rates as well. Um, at least that's a more honest tax code uh, because it would be taxing people, uh, we, it would be more visible. Um, we all know that taxing capital investment isn't a good thing. We'd rather not tax effort, but taxing consumption is a much more efficient way to do it. And uh, 
we would probably get a lot more growth. And in one fell swoop, we would turn a very uncompetitive tax code into something that would be the envy of the rest of the world. At the heart of the complaints from both the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street, the handing of specific advantage, privilege, and hundreds of billions of dollars to favored political constituencies, Louise Bennett, the former Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, spoke at this year's Cato University on the subject of cronyism and financial crisis. The general consensus was that mass deregulation caused the financial crisis, that in the decade or decade and a half leading up to 2008, we'd seen this massive deregulation and banks and financial services companies had just been allowed to do, do what they want and this was what led to the crisis. Now, that is factually incorrect. Now, I won't go into this in too much detail because it's not really the focus of, of the talk. But in fact, I think that the regulations on the banking sector or on the financial sector had increased in the period between uh, the 1990, 1995, and 2008 by as much as 200%. So this idea that there was some mass deregulation is, is, is completely false on the facts. The second is, the repeal of Glass-Steagall caused the crisis, right? That's popular on both the left and the right. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the terminology, Glass-Steagall was the act um, that separated commercial and investment banking from being or, or taking place inside the same institution. Um, it's a, it's a US-specific act. It doesn't, you don't find it in any other country. Um, but that came out of in, in 1933, and I'll discuss that a little bit in, in the talk and what the history of that was and, and, and why it existed. And then the third thing was that before 1990, when all of these changes started taking place, this quote-unquote mass deregulation and the repeal of Glass-Steagall, U.S. banks were safer. Uh, and, and I hope that, they, you know, if nothing else, at the end of today, I will have dispelled that myth. I think one of the issues that I want to underscore in today's presentation is this idea, when we speak about populism and when we speak about cronyism, people often view them as being two opposite poles. So populism tends to be more of a mass type reaction. Cronyism tends to be, you know, an elite that is able to interact with the government. And people, people sort of think of those two things on opposite opposite ends of the spectrum. And I want to argue today that, in fact, they are really operating tandem. Um, and I will, I will go into the details of why. But first, we need to look at what exactly we mean by the term. So populism um, is a term that arose in um, uh, the late 1800s. Uh, it came out of the so-called populist party, which was a new political party that was kind of a coalition of laborers, farmers, and activists. Uh, it was noted by, because it was very anti-establishment, anti-Washington, anti-intellectual. Um, they opposed laissez-faire capitalism because they felt that laissez-faire capitalism resulted in concentrations of power. They also um, opposed lobbying because they believed they wanted direct, uh, direct control over Congress. Um, they wanted to expand the money supply, so they would have liked today's Federal Reserve. Um, and they supported the introduction of a progressive tax on wealthy Americans. Uh, now, modern-day populism retains some of the original tenets of, the, um, of its historical uh, kind of uh, movement, but the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, and the environmental lobby are all modern-day populist movements, even though on some issues they are on opposite sides of the spectrum. And what the modern populists share with their historical counterparts is that they still have an anti-establishment viewpoint, and they still have res are resistant to the power of corporate America. Now onto cronyism. This is a little brief. I think most people sort of understand what is meant by this, but it's a system in which the success of your enterprise relies on you maintaining close connections 
with a governmental or, um, or state authority. Uh, and this governmental or state authority will give special favors out to its preferred constituents. Um, in Africa, where I'm from originally, it, uh, this favorite, you know, we, we would call it the banana republic approach, right? People, favoritism could include tax breaks. It could include special regulatory uh, favor. It could include, you know, licensing, uh, bailouts if you get into trouble. So special industries or special companies within industries um, are given are given special treatment, um, and so 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 that's kind of uh, where the root of, of cronyism is. And then, as a subset of that, a subcategory, you have this idea of corporate welfare, where corporations are given um, particular types of subsidies, whether it be to help them export or whether it. It allows, you know, a certain protectionism or, or to certain protections. And in the United States, we can see, for example, the Farm Bill, the Import-Export Bank, the auto bailout are all examples of, of, of corporate welfare. Um, now, as I said before, you may think that these two things are at odds with each other. But in some sense, they are really two sides of the same coin. And I put this uh, quote up there. This was Holman Jenkins, um, who writes for the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about the Import-Export Bank, but I've put the, uh, the quote in there in its entirety because I think he makes a very good point. And he says, please sue everyone from your kindergarten teacher up if you are so poorly prepared for life in our democracy as to believe that the popular struggle signals the beginning of a crusade to purify our political life from of influence peddling. On the contrary, populist revolt breeds cronyism. The post-2008 mood gave us Dodd-Frank and Obamacare, which requires all Americans under penalty of law to buy the insurance industry's products and makes insurers directly dependent on congressional appropriations for their profits. It's no coincidence that such exercises occur in moments of populist ferment when the reasonable aspirations of Americans are being thwarted by an absence of growth. Um, and I put this in its entirety because I think that the point he makes is pretty much the, the crux of, of, of what I'm going to speak about today, which is an alternative narrative to the financial crisis. And we call this the game of bank bargains. And in this, I'm going to draw quite heavily on a recent book, which I suggest if you really want to learn something about the crisis and, and the history of US banking and this topic interests you, I would highly recommend reading it. It's called Fragile by Design. And it is a, a book by Charlie Calamiris and um, Stephen Haber. And they are both professors. I think Haber is at, uh, at Stanford and, and Charlie's at uh, Columbia. And they're both banking historians, economists, and they've gone and done a, a study throughout history in the United States and looked at how the system has evolved. Um, and they've come up with this alternative narrative. Um, they've also drawn on, on the work of a, of a number of other, other academics in this field. But, they, but here's the crux of it. They say countries with stable and efficient banking sectors have mitigated the ability of bankers and populists to form coalitions that undermine financial stability. Government interventions, it should be assumed, will not end well. So says Jeff Myron, Cato's Director of Economic Studies. He spoke at Cato University describing the set of steps that would be interveners should have to take before the public should be expected to accept a government intrusion. Okay, so what do I mean by consequential libertarianism? As a lot of you know, there are basically two flavors. There, in truth, there are many, many flavors, but for rough approximation for today, there are two flavors of libertarianism, the way we think about uh, what it means to be a libertarian. Okay? One, you could call philosophical. There are other words people use, deontological. Okay? And, and secondly, the alternative, what I'll call consequential or economic. Okay? The philosophical approach, roughly speaking, just says people have rights, frequently referred to as natural rights, and that policy should not infringe those rights. Okay? 
it's pretty straightforward to recognize that almost any government tax, mandate, subsidy, requirement, expenditure, whatever, regulation, and so on, does infringe at least somebody's rights, in some cases many people's rights, and therefore, from the philosophical perspective, almost all government policies, interventions in the economy are unacceptable because they infringe rights. Now, that's clearly a perspective that many people here are very sympathetic to. It may be the perspective that brought you to being a libertarian. Okay? My own experience is that when I try it on people who are not already libertarians, a lot of them don't find it persuasive. They think that it's sort of assertion. They don't see why they should agree with all of those, with those claims. Uh, they think that other principles might be reasonable, like it is just to redistribute income a lot from richer to poor. So I'm going to give you an alternative perspective on thinking about policy. So a consequentialist perspective says, if someone is proposing that we intervene in some market via any of all the various policies, doesn't matter whether we're talking about Medicare or invading Iraq or outlawing drugs or whatever, we should ask a bunch of questions. What is the problem that this intervention, that this deviation from uh, laissez-faire okay, is supposed to fix? Okay? Convince me there's really a problem before you tell me that we need a new policy. Convince me this problem is large and not small. If it's a relatively trivial problem, then of course, since all interventions have some cost, we should just ignore it and leave it alone. Convince me that this problem won't be taken care of by private mechanisms. Even if it's not already completely addressed by private mechanisms, maybe private responses will evolve to deal with this. Now, if you have accepted all those challenges and think you've met them and you think we still should intervene, tell me exactly how you think policy should intervene. Think about the different ways it might intervene. Take drugs as an example. You could outlaw drugs if you think that drug use is a serious problem that needs to be addressed. But there are much milder things you could do, like giving people education about the pros and cons of drug use, or imposing a tax on drugs that's small enough it doesn't generate a black market. So there are lots of possible interventions. Okay? Then, of course, you have to ask, will the intervention actually reduce the problem? Okay? In Washington, it's not enough. To, they never think about that. They say there is a problem. They're frequently exaggerating or wrong. But then they say, therefore, we should have this policy without saying, will this policy actually make that problem smaller? Okay, that's crucial. How much will it reduce the problem? And then, in some ways, most importantly, what do these interventions cost? Okay, and by cost, I don't just mean the dollars in the government budget. I mean all the negative effects that the policy might have, including, in particular, unintended consequences. If we had to sum up consequential libertarianism in two words, unintended consequences would certainly be those words. Okay, so then, consequential libertarianism just says, after we've thought through all that, we should intervene if, but only if, you're really persuaded that the whole set of consequences from the intervention Okay, are better than not intervening, that staying out, that just having laissez-faire um, in a particular area or more broadly. Or relatedly, if there is some problem and it probably does require some, inter might, might suggest some government intervention, choose intervention A over B okay, if the consequences from A are better than B. Now, in the way I've stated that, it might seem pretty trivial. You could say that's just cost-benefit analysis, or that's just thinking like an economist, looking at all the pros and cons of a given intervention and making the choice that seems to have the best combinations of pros relative to cons, of positives relative to negatives. Okay? And you can quickly see that you could do everything I've suggested, and I still wouldn't get to a conclusion. Why wouldn't you get to a conclusion? Because people could take that perspective but have very different views on what the consequences were of a given policy. Some people think that drug prohibition reduces drug use a lot, and some people disagree. Some people think the effect is very small. So if you have those two different views about the evidence, about the magnitudes or the direction of the consequences, then of course you might come to different conclusions about the desirability of a particular policy. Likewise, people often put very different weights or values on particular consequences. As an economist, I think that if government prohibitions reduce people's ability to use drugs, it's typically making them worse off. It's interfering with their choices. It's reducing their utility if you want to use the economics lingo. But many other people think that reducing drug use is a good thing, not a bad thing. So people have different values. Okay? Any issue you can think of, whether it's redistributing income, providing uh, subsidized health insurance, so on and so forth, different people might bring very different weights, different values or perspectives about what are the desired effects of policy, and so of course they might disagree pretty radically 
about which policies. So having said that, your natural response to what I presented so far should be, well, consequential libertarianism has no bite. It doesn't tell you anything. It just says you should be reasonable. You should be willing to debate all the positives and negatives. At some level, everybody agrees that. They don't always behave that way, but at some level, they agree with that. Okay? So consequential libertarian is also an empirical claim in addition to the general perspective of the approach. It's a claim that the vast majority of cases, when we add up all the pros and cons, okay, that the negatives are almost always going to outweigh the positives, okay, and therefore the interventions are worse than laissez-faire. The treatment is worse than the disease, even in cases where there may be genuine negative aspects uh, of laissez-faire. So small government is better. Note, I didn't say small government is best. It's just better than the alternative of more government. Okay? Um, and that by small, we mean really, really small. Okay? My argument will be, if you think in the way I'm, going to, we're, I'm discussing, we should remove all government adopted since the 90s, okay? and I mean the 1790s. Okay? So <laughs> we're talking really small. I could see some of you thinking, hey, this, this guy's a big government status. He only wants to go back to the 90s. No, very, very small. So my claim is that there would be one, essentially only one federal government okay, activity, which is national defense. Um, in terms of dollars spent, persons employed, anything, it would swamp everything else. Okay? You can see that that's certainly not the case currently. It is somewhat in terms of employment, but not expenditure. Okay? And there would be a few miscellaneous other government activities. Okay? So if we're going to have some expenditure on national defense, we, of course, have to collect something in taxes. Relatively trivial by comparison today, but a little bit. There are some crimes that are, in their nature, federal crimes. Treason, okay, kidnapping, piracy on the high seas. Perhaps there's a few miscellaneous things like staffing embassies and consulates. But this stuff is all just total peanuts. Okay? Compared to what happens now, okay, right now there are many, many, many federal crimes growing all the time. A huge fraction of it is drug crimes, and so 60% or so of federal prisoners are there on drug charges. The federal government is doing much more than just uh, what I describe here. Now, of course, we should also talk about state government. For libertarians, thinking about state versus federal government is an important issue. Um, there would be one significant okay, activity from state governments in libertarian land, which is operating a criminal justice system and enforcing property rights and contracts. Okay? Now, that's somewhat similar to what occurs now, but much smaller. Okay? In libertarian land, states would not have laws against drugs, gambling, prostitution, and so on. Okay? But they still would have laws against murder, robbery, theft, et cetera. You can imagine a few other state-level or city-level activities that libertarians could tolerate Fire protection is plausible. Perhaps some subsidizing of education, at least if done in a, in a, very, in a careful way, vouchers or tax credits, uh, one or two others, but still teeny by comparison to today's standards. Okay? Another way to think about it is to ask what would be legal and illegal. Okay? As I said, at the federal level, almost no criminal law. At the state level, the basic stuff that is about enforcing property rights. Okay? and essentially nothing else. Okay? So no laws against gambling, weapons, drunkenness, and so on and so forth. Regulation. Libertarian, I'm arguing that if we think about the costs and benefits carefully, you should have no role for government in protections for unions, in antitrust laws, in anti-discrimination laws, in insider trading, environment, health and safety, financial markets, building codes, on and on and on. So, summarize what I've said so far. I've defined what I call consequential libertarianism. And we've described okay, what things would look like in libertarian land. It would look like roughly the 1790s in terms of the size and scope of what government could do. Although, there were a few pretty nutty policies adopted in the 1790s too. The Alien and Sedition Acts, for example. Okay? But I haven't said anything about why consequential libertarian is correct in coming to the conclusion that we want really small government. So now we get to talking about some economics. Okay, so what is economics? It's a combination of one fact okay, and one assumption. Okay. The fact 
is that resources are scarce. Or stated differently, it's the laws of arithmetic. 2 plus 2 is 4. It's not 5 or 18 or whatever number some politician would like it to be. It says that at any moment in time, there's a finite amount of stuff in the world. And if we use it for one purpose, we can't use those same resources for another purpose. Okay? Even if you look over time, okay? you can't just magically assume there will be more in the future to pay for Medicare because over time, governments face a budget constraint. If they try to uh, pay out more and borrow too much, okay, markets will stop lending to them. And th that constraint, that the ability of a go any government to pay back its debts okay, is finite. Okay? So many times you'll see economics defined simply as the study of the allocation of scarce resources, okay, that's equivalent to what I'm saying here, it's slightly incomplete, but I really emphasize that the crucial thing is that resources are scarce. All the stuff about maximizing and utility and maximizing profits and all that is important, but it's less important than the laws of arithmetic. You can argue, as people say, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts, and the laws of arithmetic okay, are a fact. The assumption is that people have goals, most people have goals, and they pursue them as best they can given the constraints. Now notice that's deliberately much weaker than saying consumers maximize utility, for those of you who've taken an ECT course, or firms maximize profits, okay, and so on. Okay, goals that people have can be all sorts of things. They can include altruism and things you want to do for others. It can include selfishness, but it can include all sorts of good instincts, fairness, equity, however you want to define it, and so on. And it says you know, they pursue their goals as best they can. That's meant to be much less mathy, much less aggressive than saying they're brilliant okay, utility maximizers who can figure out this complicated math in their head every time they walk into the grocery store or allocate their portfolios. It just says people have things that they want ways that they want to run their businesses, way they want to run their lives, a kind of spouse they're looking for, whatever. Okay? And they try to accomplish those goals, okay? somewhat imperfectly, obviously, in many cases. But the fact that they do have some goal and that they're trying to accomplish them is going to have implications for the way uh, things work. OK. So crucially, what it means is people respond to incentives. Economics says they do the best they can, given the constraints. Okay? Given the constraints is crucial. If we didn't have the given the constraints, then of course everyone would have infinite utility. Every individual business would have max, infinite profits. Everybody would just consume as much as they wanted. It has to be, the only rational way to think about this is subject constraints. You don't have a huge amount of, an unlimited amount of money you can spend at a point in time. Governments can't borrow without bound and pay for stuff that people seem to want because sooner or later the constraint is going to kick in. So the implication is if the constraints change, then behavior is going to change. Okay? You're doing the best you can subject to constraints, which means you are up against the constraint. Okay? You are doing the best with, to spend the money you have to make your life pleasant. Okay? But if you had more money, you would spend more, so you're probably spending up to the amount of money that you have, or you're saving some of it for the future, but that's still recognizing there's a constraint. You can't consume, you might be able to consume less today and more tomorrow, but you can't just consume more today and tomorrow without regard for your constraint. So whenever things happen that means what you, the limits on your behavior have changed, you are likely to want to adjust your behavior because that change in the constraints has affected what it's desirable for you to do. So incentives matter. And incentives matter is, in some sense, the two-word summary of all of economics. It's the, it's, it's the one thing that almost all economists do agree about, okay, even though they sometimes disagree about exactly which in incentives are important. But we think of people as behaving in this way, and that means that they're going to respond okay, to changes in their environment, which change their constraints. And the crucial constraint that we want to talk about is policy. So what are examples? Consumers will buy less of a good if a policy imposes taxes on that good. Okay? If you're going to have to pay a tax to purchase apples, the total amount you can spend on apples and oranges has gone down. You might decide you love apples so much 
you're just going to give up oranges and buy only apples, or you might substitute okay, toward consuming some oranges. And typically, we think people will partially substitute toward doing something else, which has become less relatively costly if another thing is being taxed. If the government taxes your leisure, you might consume less leisure. If the government taxes your income, you'll work less hard to produce income, and so on and so forth. Okay? It means that firms, when they face changes in their environment, in particular coming from policy, will change their behavior. If there are high tax rates on profits earned in one country or one state, firms are going to want to go someplace else where they can make higher after-tax profits. Okay? So the government policy will change the incentives, change your incentive to locate in one area versus another, Okay, and that is going to be, show up in the behavior of the firms in the economy. Okay? Politicians okay, are people too, despite all evidence to the contrary. Okay? Politicians will change their positions if public opinion changes because they respond to incentives. Their incentives are to get reelected. They may also care about the good and the just and the whatever, but okay, most of their behavior suggests they put a lot of weight on getting reelected. So when public opinion changes on marijuana legalization or whatever, politicians change their positions because they're responding uh, to incentives. Okay, so now I want to talk about um, unintended consequences. You see us for unintended consequences. Economics implies that, that uh, incentives matter, and that raises the possibility that when you impose a policy, change a policy, you're going to have some consequences different than what you were hoping for, than what you thought ex ante. Policies always have stated objectives, and typically the stated objectives are very high-minded and sound very just and good and wonderful for everybody. Okay? But okay, policies can, in fact, change incentives in ways that no one, not, neither the advocates nor the opponents of any particular policy, wanted or, and in many cases, never even anticipated. And that's a crucial reason, in some sense the crucial reason, why interventions are undesirable, Basically, it's saying the treatment is worse than the disease, even if you think that there's a problem to be addressed, even if you agree that there's some policy which might tend to ameliorate that problem, it may also create other things that you don't want that are even worse. So look at some examples. Uh, I mentioned this one, flood insurance subsidies. There's been lots of discussion of that in the past few years, partially because of uh, Katrina and so on. One set of uh, bad effects of Katrina were all of the uh, casinos along the coast okay, that were wiped out. Okay? Why did that happen? Why were they all located along the coast? Well, partially because flood insurance was subsidized to locate upon the coast. So again, we have an unintended consequence of creating more damage rather than less by a government policy. Food and Drug Administration is a favorite, so I'll talk about that one briefly. Okay? The Food and Drug Administration requires pharmaceutical manufacturers who want to, want to introduce a new drug okay, to go through various kinds of testing to make sure those drugs are safe and efficacious. Okay? That doesn't sound so evil, okay? and it may indeed at times keep an ineffective or a drug with serious side effects okay, off the market. But even if it's doing that, and even if the marketplace wouldn't take care of that completely on its own, Many of us would argue the marketplace would do a perfectly good job of that. But even if not, the FDA has another okay, effect, an unintended consequence. Okay, for those drugs which are going to end up okay, being valuable and are going to get approved, the FDA causes there to be far more expense and far more delay in their getting to market. And indeed, the FDA has all sorts of bizarrely sort of stupid rules about what evidence it will ex accept. Many cases, drugs have been introduced in Europe well before they were in the US. There's lots of evidence from the actual practice of medicine about whether those drugs are useful. Okay? And they seem to be, and they don't seem to have unintended side effects. So why not just approve those drugs right away and not make them go through the trials all over again in the US? In fact, the FDA tends to make them go through it all over again. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the FDA kills, because it keeps good drugs off the market even at the same time that, just in some cases, it might okay, keep some efficacious drugs uh, from getting onto the market. Wage and price controls was actually sort of interesting. One of the reasons that we have employer-provided health care okay, is because in World War II, the wage and price controls okay, meant that companies were facing shortages of workers. They couldn't hire people because they couldn't raise wages. And they got a ruling from the government that said, they could circumvent that by offering benefits 
okay, including non-tax benefits such as health insurance. Okay? So you don't think of the fact that Medicare is out of control and health insurance is tied to your employer and all that as being due to something which happened in World War II, but in fact was precisely due uh, to the adoption of wage and price controls in World War II. Okay, so again, let me summarize where we are. Consequential libertarian says we should choose policies based on their consequences. That's not controversial. Basically, everyone agrees. But there's still huge differences in what people think the right policies are. Okay, so if everyone more or less accepts the framework for thinking about policy, for analyzing policy, how can they come to such different conclusions? They might have very different assessment of the consequences, okay, or they might put very different weights on the consequences. But I want to argue much more broadly that it's inevitable that interventions are going to do a whole range of bad things, that their tendency to do those bad things is going to be consistent across a huge range of policies. So your presumption should always be okay, that interventions are going to make things worse. In order for a regulation to endure, politicians must carefully design it so that two very different interest groups will be satisfied, the bootleggers who seek their own private benefits and the Baptists who pursue the public interest. In their new book, Bootleggers and Baptists, economists Adam Smith and Bruce Yandel describe the practice and cite the numerous times a coalition of so-called bootleggers and Baptists agree on policy prescriptions. Get your copy today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.